I'd invite you to remain standing if you're able for the reading of God's word. It's printed there for you in the bulletin. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, we're going to be looking at Psalm 4 as our sermon text today, very early on in the Psalter, commonly referred to as an evening psalm. And let us give our careful attention, for this is the word of the Lord. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, rest is something that we all long for. It's why mattress companies sell their mattresses under the premise that you will have your best night's rest if you buy our mattress. Or we can think of Z-Quil or other medications that premise all their products based on that you will have the best night's rest that you've ever had. Rest is an important part of our kids' life. It's even built into their schedules to have naps throughout the day. And certainly as adults, as we get more and more tired, we recognize the importance of rest. It's something that we all long for, but it's something that we so seldomly have, especially in our world today. Everyone is looking for rest, and yet we live in a world that is more tired, that's more burnt out, that's more anxious and depressed than ever. Now, there's a couple reasons why this could be, but the main reason is that everyone is looking for rest in the wrong places. Instead of looking for it in God, where it's found alone, we look for it in our business achievements, or in a career promotion, or in other things. We're all looking for rest, yet we're looking for rest in the wrong places. Psalm 4 gives us the answer to where true rest can be found, And we want to explore looking at this psalm in just three points. We want to look at first the righteous lamenting of David in verses 1 through 3. Then we want to look at David's exhortation to the enemies for right living. And then finally in verses 6 through 8, we want to see David's consolation that he finds rest in his God and God alone. So looking first at David's righteous lamenting. The psalm jumps right in. It's kind of like the sky falling down. We don't know exactly what's going on in the surrounding context. It begins to get unpacked for us, but what's clear from the opening verses is that David is in distress. It's easy to see why this has been genre, that's not a word, why this is a lament psalm, why people have called it that, because just listen to the way that it unpacks in the first three verses. David cries out, he says, answer me when I call. We can think of this, parents or kids, maybe perhaps you remember this when you were getting frustrated or angry with something, and you knew that your parent was just down the hall, and you're crying out, you're saying, answer me, but they don't answer. 
And it's not that David is having a tantrum or that he's, that he's being childish here, but this is a call of desperation. He's calling to his father, his God in heaven, but he's not receiving an answer yet. We see a little bit of desperation even early on in this psalm. And we see that he calls out to him in a personal way because he has a personal relationship with him. He calls him, O God of my righteousness. This is a term of endearment, that he is a God who has given him righteousness. It's not just that he's an abstract deity of some sort or it's just any God, lowercase g. No, this is David's God. It's the God of his righteousness. And it's why he calls out to him in a personal way. And like any relationship, because they have a personal relationship, there's a history that they have as well. David, in reflecting upon this history, says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. This idea of relief, it literally means in Hebrew, create space or given room. And so we can think of David, maybe he's in a, a valley of rocks, and all these rocks start falling on him, and he starts to get suffocated. He starts to get squeezed under the pressure of all these rocks. The darkness is starting to cave in, and yet in those moments of distress, David was not crushed. He was not snuffed out, but light was shown through. The rocks were removed. He was able to breathe again. David recalls at, very, at various times in his life that he has been in precarious and dangerous situations, and yet in each and every one of these situations, without fail, he has said that the Lord has shown him relief. He's provided an escape. He's created room for him. And we see that in reflecting on that in the past, that's why David's lamenting in the present. He's saying, God, when I've been in times in the past, when I've been in tight spaces, You've always seen it through. You've always delivered me through this situation and that situation. And yet he laments the absence of that in his present situation. He's still in a difficult and tight spot now. The relief has not yet come. And so David cries out, lamenting in desperation, reflecting on this. He concludes verse 1 by saying, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. This is not the cry of someone who is in safety or even someone who's in a good position. But again, this is a cry of desperation, a cry for grace, a cry for mercy, for God to deliver him from his present situation. Now, we've heard David's lamenting, but we don't know exactly why he's been lamenting yet. Verse 2 then unpacks that for us. He cries out and he says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? Many commentators point out that this is not just men in a generic sense, as if this is anybody in the city, but they have pointed out that this is really noble and high-status people. And so we could even think about this as old royal men or, or, or high-status men. So it's not as if David has just been walking in the street and some kids have hurled some insults at him. It's people who are well-regarded, they're well-respected in society, these are the people that are the source of David's problems. And he cries out with two questions, and he says, how long in each of these? First he says, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? We can think about honor and shame as polar opposites on the spectrum. You're either honored in society or you have shame. And instead of being revered, instead of being a meaningful member of society that is greeted as he goes out, now he is in shame. He's scoffed at. He's not regarded as worthy of honor. 
And furthermore, he cries out, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? We could think of vain words as maybe empty rumors. They're just kind of things that are weightless, but they're tossed around very easily. And so these are perhaps rumors that have been spread about David. These are words that are spoken without a second thought that do damage to David's name and well-being and reputation. But it's not only that they, they do these things carelessly. We also see that there's a little bit of intentionality. There's some viciousness to what the men do as well. He says, how long will you seek after lies? It's not just that they love vain words that are empty and without meaning. It's also that there's intentionality that they seek these things out. They're seeking to, to create lies, to create rumors about David. Instead of just embracing the truth that's plainly in front of them, they go and seek after what is false and spread that instead. And as David reflects on both of these things, what these men have done to them, he cries out, how long? This question, how long, is one of desperation and sadness. This is a question that asks in the midst of suffering with no immediate resolution on the horizon. He sees in no short time that his problems will be solved. And so he questions, how long shall this be? Beloved, while our situations might be different, we too know what it is as sufferers in this life to cry out, How long, O Lord? We can fill it in with a variety of different things. How long, O Lord, will my body be afflicted by this sickness and this hardship that I'm going through? How long will my name be tarnished and slandered by my coworkers, even my family, simply just because... I follow Christ. How long, O oh Lord, will there be strain in our marriages and our relationships with our children? How long, O oh Lord, will my child continue to walk away from the Lord? Beloved, we too know what it is to cry out, How long, O oh Lord? And that is what the psalm, that is what makes the psalm so beautiful, that they are the anatomy of the soul that they give voice and occasion to the experiences and the sufferings and hardships that we face in life. And so the psalm encourages us to honestly cry out as sufferers to our God in prayer, how long? Verse 3, then, we would not think would transition the way that it does. Reading verses 1 and 2, we see it starts with desperation, and then he unpacks exactly what's going on. We see his hardships. But verse 3 then starts with a contrasting word that we see throughout Scripture. He says, but. There's a change. We see that there's a shift in a tone of confidence, not because his circumstances change, but because his perspective changes here. He has no indication that the slandering, that his honor is going to be restored, that the lies will stop. But it's remembering who he is to the Lord that changes his perspective. He says, you may slander me, you may turn my honor to shame, you may lie about me, but know this, O men, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. It's in remembering his identity as a child of God that he gets comfort and consolation here. It's that God has set him apart for his own purposes, that he belongs to him, not only as, his, as, a, as a creator, but also that he's our father as well, that we're sons and daughters of the living God. And finally, not only that we've been set apart for his purposes, 
But like any good father, the Lord hears us when we cry to him in prayer. This is why David has confidence that he does. It's that the Lord will hear when he calls to him. And so in verse 1, those cries of David, they do not fall on deaf ears. They are not pointless. He does this with great confidence because he knows that his father who is in heaven hears his cries of anguish. There's a great principle of wisdom that David gives here that in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his hardships, he doesn't first and foremost go to his counselors, to his friends, even to one of his spouses, but he goes first and foremost to his father who's in heaven. And it's not wrong to talk to counselors or our friends or our spouse, but so often I think that we misplace we misplace our priorities and we end up talking to people. We talk to multiple people about situations that are hard in our lives when really they have no power to make it better. But David here shows the wisdom of going first and foremost to his God, of reorienting his heart, praying to the God who is sovereign over his circumstances and all things, and trusting in him and confidence. Let us always be first to go to the Lord and then go and talk to others first. It's in having such a great confidence that the Lord hears him. The psalm, the psalm progresses not into condemnation of his enemies, but rather an exhortation to right living. Verses 4 and 5 in the trajectory of this psalm are perhaps a little different and unique than we might think about other psalms. The book of Psalms is a big book. There's 150 of them, and we can think about probably numerous times off the top of our head where David has been confronted with his enemies, and he prays a prayer of condemnation on them or that the Lord would rain down judgment upon them. But it is not so in this psalm. Instead, David perhaps exhorts them to repentance rather than judgment from the Lord. He says, be angry and do not sin. That's the first exhortation he's given we read this earlier in Ephesians 4, and I think that helps us interpret what exactly David is getting at here. In the context of Ephesians 4, Paul is giving exhortations for Christians of how they ought to live, and there we interpret it as being angry towards your sin. It's particularly having an angry and a wrath towards those things which are evil. And so what I think David here is doing towards his enemies is saying, turn from your ways. Stop spreading the lies. Stop turning my honor to shame. Be angry at your sin. Look at your wrongdoing and have a wrath and tremble at that. It's not only a recognition to hate their sin, but he also calls them to turn from it. He says, look at what you're doing. Recognize that it's wrong and stop sinning. There's an internalness to what David is calling them to doing. And finally, he says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. As we mentioned this is commonly paired with Psalm 3, which is commonly referred to as a morning psalm. And then this is the twin that is called an evening psalm. And so we can think about these events happening at the end of the day. And so it's common at the end of our day that we go to bed, that we rest upon our beds. And there's something that happens that we're looking back on what happened the day before, but we're also looking to the next day. So we're thinking about what's happened, what, we'll, what we have done, but also what will happen and what we will do as well. And so David calls them to deep internal meditation. He says, think about what you're going to do tomorrow. Yesterday, you were spreading lies. 
Consider changing your behavior tomorrow. Meditate on these things. Think about these things and be silent. But David not only calls them to an internal type of reflection, he also calls that internal change to be reflected externally as well. He calls them to offer right sacrifices. In the time of David, offering up sacrifices, offering up the best of your portion was the way that you were pious. That's how you showed your worship and devotion to God. And so he calls them to have an external sense of piety as well, not just the change in their hearts, but to reflect that in worshiping their God. Notice that he tells them to offer right sacrifices. It's not just that they can offer sacrifices however they want in their own imagination to their own fancy or even their own pleasure, but to manifest themselves in a piety that conforms itself to God's word, to God's order, to offer sacrifices in the way that God has prescribed. And finally, perhaps culminating this section, David calls them with another external and internal action. He says, and put your trust in the Lord. It's to turn from, it's to turn from their own lives, but also from themselves as well. David here is saying, empty yourselves of any confidence in yourselves. And truly put your trust in the Lord. Reorient your life and your heart in a way that shows that you trust in the Lord. That you're not banking on anything else. You're not banking on your prosperity or your status. But you're truly just trusting in the Lord. We might wonder why this psalm is different. Perhaps why David doesn't call down a judgment or he's not more angry in this section and I think it's because David, in reorienting his heart in verse 3, he exhorts them to right living because he thinks of the great rest that comes from God. That's our final point, the rest that comes from God. We don't have to wait long to find out what the response of the wicked men is. It's, I think it's there for us in verse 6. Mockingly, they ask, who will show us some good? So it's clear that though David has exhorted them to right living, that it has fallen on deaf ears, it has not made a lick of difference, they have not changed at all. And in response to his exhortation, they say, who will show us some good? They're looking at David, they're looking at him in distress, how his honor has turned into shame, how these lies are piling up and destroying his reputation. And they question him, they say, who are you, David? Who are you that you are going to show us some good? Your life is in misery and ruin, and yet you are trying to give us a TED Talk, David, on how we can improve our lives. Who are you, David? Who will show us some good? David's response is absolutely beautiful and powerful. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is not a direct quotation, but I think that this is a strong allusion to their ironic blessing in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. Remember that great blessing that God gave to the high priest Aaron to pronounce his favor over the people. And so David here in response, though his external and circumstances are a mess, he even has hope and confidence in the favor of the Lord. In his response to the men, what is your hope? What is the good that you will show us? David declares boldly that it is the Lord's blessing and favor. And beloved, as David is able to declare this so boldly, even though his circumstances are a disaster, 
lies are spread about him, we can declare this with just as much and perhaps even greater confidence that we truly have the favor of the Lord because of the greater son of David, Christ Jesus, that came. Who came in our flesh, who was obedient where our first parents failed and Israel failed. And we see most clearly that we have God's favor to us in Christ at the cross of Christ Jesus. There Christ took on our guilt, bearing the wrath of our sins that our sins deserve, dying the death that we deserved. So that instead of receiving the guilt that we justly deserved, we were clothed in his perfect righteousness. Instead of, seeing, instead of receiving the condemnation that we would have so justly deserved, that God justly would have placed on our first parents and could have easily turned his back on them for rebelling in the garden, we receive reconciliation to God and are now able to call him Father. At the cross of Christ Jesus, Christ suffering for our sins on our behalf had his father's face turned away from him, had his disfavorable presence so that for us, beloved, we would only know God's favor as our father, that we would never know God's disfavor because Christ suffered that on our behalf. Love it. It is God's favor that gives David a trust and confidence, and this gives us a trust and confidence too. It's knowing that we're loved and accepted before our Father, and that there is nothing in all of earth, no hardships, no trials, no sins, no people. There is nothing that can separate us from God's love, from God's favor to us in Christ Jesus. It is sure we can rest in that. We can trust in God's favor to us in Christ Jesus. And it's not only that that produces a trust and a confidence, that trust and confidence produces the fruit of joy as well. Knowing that we're accepted before our Heavenly Father, it doesn't just give us a status change, but it changes our hearts as well. We have a joy that is exuberant, and that's what comes out in David. It bubbles to the surface in verse 7. He says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. This is a comparison. He says that even though his external circumstances are difficult and materially the wicked are prospering, there is more joy in having the favor of the Lord upon him than any earthly good. It's transcendent. The joy that Christians have in Christ can never ever be topped or triumphed or even rivaled by anything here on earth. This is a picture of material prosperity. Grain was something we obviously was used for bread. It's not something that was fancy, but it was something that would have been used for common sustenance. This would have mean that they had nutrients and things to eat. They would have had their stomachs taken care of. But wine, as we know it even today, is a drink of celebration as well. It's not just that they have enough to eat to sustain themselves. They also have wine to party a little bit to celebrate. And so we can think of they have, they have bread to eat, but they also have stores full of grain for the harvest. They've had a plentiful harvest. They will not be without lack in the future. And this is not just wine that they're drinking, but this is new grapes as well. This is a, a plentiful harvest that they're looking for. We live in Temecula, which is a, a popular wine country. And so we can think of an image of going to a vineyard 
and being impressed with the prosperity of full grapes, of full vines that are full with plump grapes that are going to produce great wine for the future. And yet despite these things, which are good, we might even celebrate them today, David says they're of no comparison of what it is to have joy in the Lord. Finally, David concludes this evening psalm, going to bed at night, he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The psalm is only eight verses, but think about what we just read, where David ends this psalm and where he started. Think about the trajectory of where he moves. And yet, in the midst of all that, we see that David starts out crying out in distress and anguish, and he ends saying that in peace I'm going to lie down and sleep. In such a short time, there's been a radical shift in David's heart and perspective. And yet think about everything else in between the middle. We have no indication that David's circumstances have actually improved. Verse 6 actually gives us a key that they are going to continue and perhaps even get worse. As he calls the wicked people to turn in their ways, they respond in a scornful and mockingly way. It is not that David's circumstances have changed, but rather his perspective has changed. He's turned his heart and attention towards the Lord, and he finds satisfaction and rest there because he knows that his God is the rest giver, that he can have confidence in that. Beloved, this means that even in the hardships, even when our circumstances don't improve, even in the midst of our suffering, that God is working in the midst of those things. That even in times of difficulty, that we can still have hope and trust and confidence that even though our circumstances don't change, that we trust and rest in the unchangeable God who gives us unchangeable promises to us in his son, Christ Jesus. David is able to lie down. He's able to set his head on the pillow and close his eyes and sleep in peace, that even though there's all this chaos around him, because it is the Lord who is the source of his rest. That is David's confidence. We see that we can have a rest in our God in terms of our salvation, that Christ Jesus, when he finished his work on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. And furthermore, he triumphed over death, the great enemy who he conquered over it in his resurrection And we look forward to sharing in that victory over death in our own resurrection that is sure. We can rest in Christ and trust and have confidence in him for our salvation because he has accomplished all things. Body and soul, we belong to our God. And beloved, not a hair on our head can fall apart from his will. We can trust in him, that we belong to him, that no matter what happens to us in this life, that body and soul, we will belong to him in heaven. We will be united to him one day. But in the midst of the hardships of life, we can also trust and rest in Christ. The greater greater son of David in the gospel of Matthew, he gives us a sweet promise. He says, to those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. It's not as if the rest we're waiting for is far off, as if it's a kind of pie-in-the-sky thing that we're waiting for. But our Savior knows. He came and took on our flesh. He came to our broken world. 
He suffered amongst us, and he knows the tribulations, the hardships of life. And because of that, he gives a promise to his people. He says, if you are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. Friends, we know what it is to be restless, to just be worn out, to be broken down by the weight of a sin-cursed world. We even know what it is to just be exhausted by the daily tasks of life, to prepare a meal for little ones or for our families each and every day, or to run to soccer practice, to have to make our commute to work, to have to get up for school once again, to have to continue to pay our car bills and our energy bills and all these things. The monotony of life can just crush us and break us down. And in those moments, Christ calls us into his presence. He says, come and sit in my beautiful and perfect presence, and I will give you rest for your weary souls. We opened this sermon thinking about the, maybe the world, that they don't have rest, that we're, the modern world is more anxious and restless than ever. What about in the church? Are we much different do we feel just as restless and broken down as everybody else? Do we feel restless as we rest in our own self-righteousness and our own strivings of perfectionism, trying to gather and heap up enough just to be enough to our Heavenly Father? Friends, if that's you here today, trust in Christ and his perfect righteousness. Just to set down the perfectionism, set down the self-righteousness and rest in Christ's perfect righteousness that's been accomplished for you? Are we restless as we seek our identity and fulfillment through having a perfect marriage or having a perfect Christmas card with a nice family on the front or academic or business achievements? Have we misplaced our identity and caused ourselves restlessness? Friends, if that's you here today, come back to Christ, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, who never changes, who you will always have the same identity in the gospel of Christ Jesus as forgiven and as a beloved child of God. If you are here today and you are not trusting in Christ, I would put forth this question to you. Do you find rest in the things you search for. If you're particularly feeling this holiday season empty and hollow and more restless than ever, I would encourage you to look to faith in Christ Jesus, the one who gives rest to weary souls, the one who gives a satisfaction far beyond anything in this world. Friends, we are restless as weary pilgrims in a broken world, we find ourselves at the cross-section of the already and the not yet. We know that we are redeemed, that we are awaiting a glorious inheritance, but in between, we still lived in a sin-cursed world. We are still going to be weary people. We are still going to be those affected by loss and the death of loved ones. But in the midst, as we wait for that great everlasting Sabbath rest, I pray that we go to Christ and rest in his presence in those moments where we feel weary and heavy laden. He will not cast off those who come to him. So go before Christ, your Savior, 
rest in his presence. And we long more and more for that everlasting Sabbath rest that Christ that has already entered into, that we will also share into as his children and as co-heirs with him, that there will be a great day where Christ will give an everlasting rest to our souls and our bodies and we will be in his glorious presence, free from the absence of sin and struggles and sorrows and death. And we will enter into that rest. And in the meantime, while we wait for that great day of rest, I pray that we will comfort ourselves with the promises of his gospel that he has given us to sustain us here on earth. May the Lord hasten that day where he returns and gives his church and his people that everlasting Sabbath rest. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this first day of the week, this Sabbath day that we can gather together to worship you, our great God, our risen King who triumphed over death, who secured our salvation and is now reigning at your right hand and has entered into that everlasting rest and has also assured his people who trust in him that that rest will be ours as well. And Lord, we long for that rest more and more. And Father, we know that in the midst of that, the holidays are a stressful and difficult time and that many of us have come into this place tired and broken and weary of coming into another 12 months, another new year. But Father, I pray that you would give us rest that you would restore our souls, that you would comfort us with the sweet promises of your word, and that we would know that we belong to you, our great God. I pray that as we go into the new year, Lord, as we switch to another calendar year, that you would reorient our hearts, Lord, that we would have a greater devotion, a greater love, a greater joy in serving you as our God and Savior. I thank you for the ways, amidst the difficulties that you have sustained Christ Presbyterian Church, we thank you that you are the head of the church and that you are always watching over her and defending her. We pray that you would bless this church as we go into the new year, continue to sustain her and bless her ministry. Lord, we thank you for your grace and the abundance of mercy that you have shown to us in your Son and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray and ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.